everybody welcome to the 19th episode of our main podcast this podcast along with all of our other podcasts are part of northern provisions llc check out the lethal minds journal a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs art and culture take a look at the journal's bulletin from the borderlands a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Check out the Freelancers. That's a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. Find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Freelancers Blog, and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress. Dot com to see more please consider supporting us on patreon that is at patreon.com analyze educate or you could also support us on ko-fi that is at ko-fi.com analyze educate so for this episode i'm joined by northern provisions and today we will be talking to Chaz smith Chaz is an author and a journalist you may know him on instagram at surf journalist he is a regular contributor and editor at large of surfing magazine He's also done work for Vice, uh, GQ, Black Book, Stab, and the New York Times. He's also written a few books. Uh, One of his books, Reports from Hell, he talks about going to Yemen to sort of try and discover the origins of Al-Qaeda. He also goes to Lebanon during the 2006 war with Israel. Uh, At that time, he was actually kidnapped by Hezbollah for a little bit, so we talk about that with him. Um, This is only part one of us talking to Chaz Unfortunately, we had to cut it a little bit short, but there's still a lot more that me and Northern both wanted to ask him. But we really hope you guys enjoy this podcast. Uh, Chaz really has a lot to talk about, just super, super interesting story. And I really hope you guys enjoy this uh, really as much as me and Northern Provisions did, because it was great talking to him. Hey everyone, I'm here with Northern Provisions and I'm here with uh, Chaz Smith, surf journalist on Instagram, and we're going to be talking to Chaz today and getting his story. Gentlemen, how's it going? Fantastic. So Chaz, uh, just starting off the back, man, like like I said before we started here, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, You've got a very unique story, having spent so much time somewhat involved in the global war on terror, right? Just not in a uh, not in a way that most people would expect. Yeah, not not in probably a practical and or good way. <laughs> That's right. So you are uh, known for, especially in, in the kind of military veteran community, there is a photo of you with your surfboard in the back of a technical. And this picture has been spread so much. Uh, in fact, I've come across it for years now. Uh, I didn't even know the context of it. And I said, you know, I really want to know more about this. So ended up coming across some articles about you and uh, saw that you were a surfer in Yemen shortly after 9-11. Ended up seeing you had a book, got the book. And Chaz, I blew through this thing in about three days, man. Fourth <laughs> from hell. I was like, I was taken away. So would, I thought it was just an interesting story, man. You have this, you're, you're known. Uh, but in this community, they just don't understand kind of the background of it. And I thought that'd be a really cool story to tell. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, do you want me to start just how I got into it? Yeah, absolutely. Let's just start from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, so I grew up uh, on the Oregon coast and always had loved surfing. Like my cousin surfed and actually lived in 
San Diego. And so we'd come down to San Diego and, and visit them. And their uncle was actually, uh, he would do some stuff. It was called the Christian Emergency Relief Teams, I think is what the name was. And they would go and take doctors and dentists into sort of uh, yeah, war-torn zones. Um, but then also come to find out he was uh, smuggling stinger missiles into Afghanistan during the time for the uh, Taliban, or not Taliban, I'm sorry, the Mujahideen to use. Um, and so I just became fascinated at that point with Middle East in general. Uh, and so went to study in uh, Egypt as an undergrad, did a semester in Egypt, and then just went back to the Middle East as much as I could. Just, yeah, every every chance I got, just running around Syria and uh, Egypt, just anywhere. And then as soon as kind of 9-11 happened and I saw Osama bin Laden uh, was originally from Yemen or his family was from Yemen, I became fascinated by Yemen and was staring at it and seeing that the way it faced on the Indian Ocean, it must have surfed, but nobody had ever surfed it. So then concocted a plan with a couple of buddies to, to get there and be the first to surf mainland Yemen right after 9-11. And uh, in the birthplace of Osama bin Laden, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's like, yeah, going up, I mean, I've been to Yemen so many times since, but yeah, like tracking down or trying to track down his family uh, and sort of the, the headwaters of radical Islam up there in the Hadramaut, the, the uh, yeah, sort of the valley that, that runs up. And yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, Yemen is just endlessly fascinating. So are there any, you know, you don't just have experience like within the global war on terror, but you have experience in all these different wars, right? Uh, you also were spent some time in Lebanon during the Israeli-Lebanon conflict. What were some main differences you saw between all these wars, although there was, you know, that uh, ethno-religious kind of center? What were the differences that you saw between all of them? I mean, I think that there was, oh, I guess I guess the difference specifically between Yemen and uh, Lebanon, I suppose, like being actually in a hot war uh, in Lebanon, where it was, you know, actively like going out and, you know, buddies and I didn't come up in the military so we're not screwing around at all but but it must have had a screwy kind of aspect to it but so just watching you know like going out into hills and like watching sort of tanks coming over them and stuff like that versus versus Yemen where the whole thing was tense but there wasn't I guess there was some boots on the ground like we ran into I think special forces pretty deep into Yemen uh but other than that it was just kind of a kind of a, like the global war on terror being a vibe, I guess, versus the, an actual war being a war. Right. Uh, Chaz, is this the, uh, the 2006 war? Yeah, that was the 2006. Yep. Okay. And what was, uh, what was your experience there? I got, did you go there as a journalist or did you? Yeah, we did. Like, uh, so after kind of the Yemen stuff and, you know, we, we had done a bunch of, I, I wrote, uh, for Vice magazine for a while and, like those stories kind of, I don't know, dumb, right? Like it, I look back on it and I think how kind of war tourism-y it looks and feels. Uh, and that really wasn't what we were trying to do. I was fascinated by just, it felt like the world was falling apart at that point, right? Like that what we knew and what we had, or, you know, how I was raised, I suppose, like being raised under the Cold War, uh, where there was, you know, this kind of known enemy in Russia or whatever, you know, in my school mind. And then all of a sudden this, that all broke down. And now there's this, you know, I mean, just this entire other world. So trying to experience that in every single way I could, but 
it, <clears throat> excuse me, in any case, yeah, like uh, by the time the 2006, uh, when Israel rolled into Lebanon, uh, I guess we had kind of had, me and buddies kind of had a reputation. And so I got approached by Current TV, which was back then Al Gore's, I think, whatever, he was trying to start cable or uh, internet news, I suppose. Uh, and so, yeah, we, they wanted us to go look at it. So off we went. And when okay. you were there, you had a pretty close encounter, uh, not only with Israeli jets, but then also subsequently kidding, uh, getting kidnapped by Hezbollah. Yeah, I got, got grabbed when we were, I mean, this was the first kind of active war, uh, we had covered or I had ever covered. And so, watching the way that the media covered it like everybody be in and out kind of quick and they'd be in big media caravans and whatnot and I was like what are you people doing like we could do whatever we want here so yeah we just got mopeds and then started kind of going into where bombing was happening which obviously in retrospect was not smart uh and then so almost got drilled by a by a bomb and then uh, when we were coming out of the rubble uh yeah, I got picked up by Hezbollah. They thought we were uh, helping Israeli jets coordinate bombing attacks. So got in kind of extra big trouble. How how uh, did that go? Yeah, it, I mean, I thought we were fully dead. I We got initially grabbed by the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and a mob had started gathering. A guy, they actually tried to shoot us off our scooters first. And then uh, we made it out of that kind of, but then we got grabbed and we're getting drugged back into the, kind of the neighborhood and yeah I jumped off and thankfully some big burly PLO guy was there and threw me and buddy into like a shed kind of and just said we'll wait till everything calms down and then like a, a mob had started gathering outside he's like oh, I'll go away don't worry about it uh but then after like 30 minutes he came in and was kind of pale face and said Hezbollah has called for you and there's and there's nothing I could do I gotta I gotta turn you over and so I thought oops and then yeah got turned over to Hezbollah I mean, what was that like in that moment when when this guy comes in and, you know, even this guy who probably had a steeled face, not just minutes before, is now, you know, flushed in the face, pale, just kind of losing it. What was that like? It was just like this spine chilling moment where you're like, this is it. I'm fucked. Not not kind of yet. We had done uh, some stuff in Lebanon before and I had kind of met with Hezbollah people before and had, had uh, yeah, communicated. I think he was there like. I can't even remember. I think they used to have a guy, if I recall, on oh, maybe that was the Taliban who had a guy on UCLA campus. Anyway, I had had some experience with Hezbollah, so I wasn't I wasn't that nervous. But it was when they, yeah, when the guy came in and kind of slapped the drinks out of our hands and they pulled our T-shirts over our head and threw us in the back of the car with guns of the temple. That's when I thought, oh, this this thing just went sideways. But they ended up after they cleared you. Uh, is it safe to say they really kind of ended up treating you very? hospitably yeah totally i mean that's that we got a like a solid sat in a dungeon for a minute and then got a solid interrogation but uh i think i have no idea why i mean we looked obviously we're two americans driving into you know bomb zones with our scooters and i mean i can't imagine like would have been so much easier for them just to pick us off and be like done these guys are dumb and 10 deserve every bit of it but they really, really tried to get to the bottom of what we were doing in the interrogation. And yeah, I think it would, it kind of broke at some point where my buddy who I was with, he studied uh, Islamic studies at UCLA. And so they had a Quranic uh, poster on the wall and he was reading it. 
and they were really impressed with his like proper uh, his proper speech. And so from there, we kind of got on to what we had studied and whatnot. And I think they knew that we hadn't studied or they could tell my Arabic was such a weird mess of uh, Egyptian Arabic and Yemeni Arabic. And his was kind of, I don't know, school Arabic mixed with Yemeni. And uh, I think they could tell that we didn't study in Monterey. Um, and I think that was kind of where it broke is that we, we hadn't got our linguistic training, at least in any kind of military thing. And so then I think from that point, they just believed we were journalists being dumb. Fair enough. And this really kind of offered you, as well as your experiences in Yemen, really offered you a different perspective of, you know, the Islamic world and uh, even parts of what people would consider to be radical Islam, you know, post 9-11 America. Uh, a lot of anger, a lot of tension towards that part of the world. And here you are kind of seeing it firsthand, but you're also seeing a different perspective that a lot of Americans simply didn't get. Yeah, completely. And that, I mean, that was part of my interest in going over there post 9-11 in particular is I had had such wonderful experiences studying and, and, you know, just getting to know people from, again, from Lebanon to Syria through, you know, Jordan, Egypt, everywhere around that we went. And so Somalia, uh, and so once it happened, I just thought, man, like, you know, I, I, and maybe it's oh, naive, but I just thought these, you know, I, I know these people, I want to go to hang out. And, it, you know, of course it was, there was dangerous times and whatnot, but it, but it worked out. I mean, all like always, especially in Yemen, like I get, you know, like proper honest to goodness, Mujahideens in there running around who would be, you know, Al Qaeda, who would be real mad but then they'd give you a real tongue lashing about what america had done but then afterwards buy you a cup of tea the where it was almost like cathartic not cathartic for them but just like being there in person is you know and and of course it could have turned rotten at any point but it always worked out and it always felt like a human connection was made it wasn't just this you know i hate you you hate us and let's never talk again right now do you think you know, just just judging from what you saw and the people you've met, you know, do you think America and its foreign policy since then has really damaged its reputation even further? It seems that way. I mean, especially with the, you no, know, I don't think anybody ever wants boots on the ground, but the especially with the drone strike kind of thing, where you just have like unseen hell, you know, falling in on you and extra judicial killings and all of it. Like I get that America's military has you know, this mission and has to, has this, has this burden of keeping the country safe and the civil, you know, the people here safe. And I, I get it, but it just seems like the damage done in that way, just, and again, I'm no, you know, brilliant tactician, but it just seems, it seemed unnecessary. It seemed like there would have been another way to work it out. Right. Right. Now coming back, um, coming back stateside, how, how has that been for you? I mean, cause you just, you go through all these different war zones, right? And you're seeing a lot of this trauma firsthand. And in some cases, it's experiencing it, right? What's that like coming back to the United States and then kind of continuing on with normal life? How has that been for you transitional-wise? I mean, I think it's hard sometimes, right? Of, of people here have it so easy and so good in the United States. And that's great. But then kind of fixating on or, or having the the bandwidth to be able to fixate on smaller, like just luxury problems. Uh, when you're somewhere where people 
and where life is so tense and life is being lived on the edge so much. And, you know, the, like it's the little things that are making people happy. It's just shelter and food and, you know, a little bit of family connection or whatever, as opposed to here, it just seems like the gluttony that is America where, and nobody goes out ever to experience, or so few go out to experience that, right? Like I think our military men and women do all the time. And I mean, it's gotta be way harder for them to go out and, and not only think, not only have I seen this different life, but I've risked my life for these people back home who are, have, are just clueless and, and don't want to learn. And I think that's, that's kind of tough. Yeah. Do you, is there, out of all your travel experiences, is there anything that just really sticks out to you as probably like, you know, I'm sure it's hard to rate these, but would you say there's a particular experience that is just completely number one in terms of how memorable it is? I mean, I think Yemen in general, just because especially the deeper we got, uh, we had a real, yeah, I mean, unique opportunity. I think we uh, had a buddy had uh, somehow gotten contact with the ex Yemeni prime minister's son. And so through him, we had passes to go places in the country that people you just can't get to, right? And so seeing like places like Shabam, which is like the mud brick, you know, it's like a mud brick Manhattan in the middle of the Hadramaut and just these kinds of places and bumping into people all through Yemen, which, I mean, Yemen is an incredible, incredible country. And it really is, I suppose, back to your other question, it's heartbreaking to see what has happened to Yemen uh, because it, it truly, I mean, I suppose if you didn't know better, you would look at Yemen on the map and just think it was a, you know, like Saudi Arabia, it's a desert wasteland kind of, and it's absolutely not. It's an architectural gem. There's is a beautiful, like, and, and just historically and culturally rich. Uh, and so, yeah, it's hard to put a one moment in Yemen, but Yemen in general is like mind bendingly amazing. And I, I know you said you've been there multiple times, right? So when was the last time you went over there? Last time was, I think would have been 20, uh, maybe 2012, I think was the last time. Uh, and had ridden, yeah, like rode motorcycles from, uh, or was that even, yeah, I think that was the last time. Rode motorcycles, went into Sana'a, got motorcycles and, and ripped around the whole country on motorcycles all the way to the Oman border, which was pretty epic. Okay, and is there, are there any big differences you noticed in 2012 from the other times you were there? I mean, 2001 or whenever when speaking about you know the security situation or maybe just the mood of the people because i think 2012 that's probably what two years before the civil war starts i want to say yeah it was right before and buddies buddies actually had a sailboat in uh aden and were but were there right when the civil war started but it seemed like the there was a bit of tension between the you could sort of feel it bubbling a bit when i was there between the uh people who lived in the south and talking about the about Sana'a and that situation, they seem pretty disconnected, but they kind of always were. I mean, I think Yemen as one country is, it's super tribal, right? And so it's like one of these places where the uh, people's, I don't know, their, uh, what, where they feel familial is tribe first, it's not country. They don't consider themselves Yemeni particularly. I mean, I think they do, but that's like down the list. But in the last time I was there, you could feel like a genuine frustration with the people in the South uh, and what was happening in, in Sana'a. 
And your last time you're there, I mean, are you going there just to go because you like Yemen or do you have a, do you have a, I don't know, something you want to cover? I th- that one, I think that one was to cover. We were actually trying to find, Buddy had uh, really genuinely sort of pinpointed. I mean, I think that the uh, conventional wisdom was that the idea of, or what was really feeding radical Islam as an ideology had come from um, mosques in India or this one specific mosque in India. And he was convinced that where that was, or where that ideology was coming from was deep Yemen. And so we were actually going to look for this family that belonged to this school to, to truly try to find the headwaters of, you know, where did radical Islam, because I think you just think, oh, or maybe the typical American just thinks this idea of jihad and, uh, you know, Islam or Muslims being anti-Western and this is just baked in, but it, it really wasn't. It came and there was a specific strain that formed up kind of Al-Qaeda's mentality and all this kind of stuff. So I don't know, just finding where that root was or, or the seed was, that was that last mission. Okay. And were you guys able to find anything interesting in regards we to found that? a member of the family and then of the family that buddy was convinced was the was the family behind this all and then yeah ran out of time to to uh to do more and then the civil war just wrecked the whole thing and uh That's crazy. yeah what's oh i'm sorry no my bad go ahead man no and uh what's going through your mind once you know the civil war really starts to ramp up i mean it's probably not somewhere you want to be no, and yeah, again, buddy or uh, two of the buddies who who were there on most of the trips uh, were in Aden. Like we had a sa- a sailboat that the harbor master in Aden, like a family who had decided to sail around the world, had abandoned it in Aden. He's like, "Hey, this boat's yours if you guys get it out of here." And so they were there scrubbing it when the first car bombs started going off in in Aden. And yeah, like so they. I think they tried to get the boat out, but then eventually had to leave. And yeah, I mean, it was like watching just the human crisis. Uh, Cause again, you know, I'd been there a bunch and love those people, love the culture, love everything. And then to watch the, watch it collapse was, was heartbreaking and, and to feel like I couldn't do anything about it. And do you yeah. feel like, you know, it, as much as it is just progressed um, to the point where, you know, it is considered now one of the, to be one of the worst humanitarian crises uh, of our time. You know, is that is that rough to see, having you know met so many people and experienced all the things you have, and knowing so, that people are just suffering? So rough. I mean, it's the roughest because again, it's not. And anybody who has spent time or knows Yemen, it's not just this. You know, like spent time in Somalia too, and not that Somalia deserves what they got, but Somalia is really a backwater, right? Like the they cut down all their trees. The I mean, it's Somalia is rough. Uh, Yemen was not rough. Yemen is is literate and beautiful, and they have you know interesting cuisine and architecture and all of it. So it's this it's this society, this beautiful society that fully collapsed, which that was heartbreaking. And of course, then you know just the food issues and the starvation and the, all of it like is devastating. How much of this, you know, in ter- in terms of conflicts in the Middle East, right? Um, at the end of the day, some of this can be attributed to what I would call, you know, proxy wars between different uh, countries like Saudi Arabia and, and Iran. How much of the fighting there do you think is organic to actual 
you know, strife that's that's between the Yemeni tribes? And how much do you think is kind of purported and, and emboldened by outside countries? Yeah, I mean, I don't think much. I think that Yemeni tribes have lived with each other in, you know, varying kind of uh power dynamic but they i feel that they like would sort it out uh when somebody got too powerful or when whatever right like i mean it's the i think it was uh maybe still as the the most densely armed country on earth and i think everybody has a gun there and it's just like it seemed like it all kind of worked out like that tribe is heavily armed this tribe is heavily armed they don't want to really go to war they'll just sort it out but it seems like uh with saudi arabia flexing and and Saudi trying to prove something it seems like without that it would have worked out fine I don't think that didn't seem to me like the beef would have been enough to go big civil war between the south and the north uh unless Saudi was was yeah just really messing with it and then of course as you said everybody getting in proxy style Right. You even, if I remember correctly, you even kind of touch into uh, the South family a little bit and its origins in that book. Um, and, you know, that kind of that specific strain that you're talking about, the uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Wahhabi Salafist kind of way of, of global jihad. And, you know, that's a very specific group of individuals who are very devout. Um, and I think if you remember, or I'm sorry, I'm pretty sure I remember you kind of going into like the Saudi family and its beginnings and and how they've kind of come to the power and influence that they have now. Um, and, you know, in terms of the global war on terror, we know the American involvement, but I'm not sure that many people are aware of how deep Saudi involvement is in a lot of these conflicts as well. Completely, completely. And the like Saudi both, you know, funding so much of it and then also, you know, out of backing the other side. I mean, Saudi is like tied up in a dirty, dirty way. I think that that when you look at it, you just kind of think, how is this our ally? How is Saudi Arabia our great ally in the Middle East? And uh, I mean, that's kind of a, a conversation that comes up every once in a while. It doesn't last too long, but every once in a while you'll hear, you know, we need to stop supporting Saudi Arabia and their the war in Yemen. You know, we provide them weapons. We refuel their jets when they launch airstrikes. It's this conversation that comes around every once in a while and it never lasts. And that's why I'm glad you're here, because, um, you know, the American people really just don't know a whole lot about this when they think Yemen, they think it's you know, nothing but dirt and AKs. And that's how it's always been. And like you said, that's not the case at all. It's a beautiful country and it's been absolutely devastated. It is maybe the worst humanitarian crisis or it's certainly top three right now. Um, and yeah, it's just a, it's just a shame, you know, before you said, when you were talking about Yemen, you said, oh, you know, the, the work you did, it kind of seemed like war tourism or whatever. And unfortunately, when, independent journalists or non-mainstream journalists like go to war zones and, and do the kind of coverage you have people accuse them of that of war tourism and trying to profiteer but you know they're the ones that typically have the really good coverage because what you're hearing from the mainstream is you know basically nothing i mean that's so true like and and anybody who's willing i think there was a kind of especially early days of vice there was kind of a kink on getting off on war which i thought was gross 
but since then to anybody who's going out there and really trying to find a story and especially human stories, right? Like, cause I think that the big political picture can get covered, you know, I don't know, sometimes better, sometimes worse by the mainstream, but it's the, it's really hard. The having boots on the ground there in terms of getting real people stories is rough, but those are the ones that oftentimes matter and will turn public opinion, having a human story from Yemen, as opposed to, you know, just this broad picture of it being them being a bunch of dirty Muslims who kind of deserve what they're getting. Yeah, no, hundred percent. So kind of, you know, related, but unrelated. How was the surfing in Yemen, man? It was epic. It was totally (laughs) awesome. It was so fun. Uh, I didn't think there was, I mean, I thought there would be waves. I didn't imagine it would be nearly as good as it was. My favorite, like we, so we found surf the way the Horn of Africa comes uh, Horn of Africa comes around thought, okay, there's going to be major Island shadow kind of for half the country. And so we got to get up, you know, well past Mukulla, which is like kind of midway to, to Oman, uh, but actually had waves in Aden. And then in Mukulla had, there was a full on point break uh, right outside of town that was so ridiculously epically fun. And yeah, just paddling out for the first time there. And of course, nobody, nobody had ever surfed mainland Yemen before, I think outside of Aden. And so paddling out at any of these waves, knowing you're the first to surf them. And then, yeah, like just having the best time. And eventually, you know, a bunch of Yemenis, all chewing cot, will rock up and, and sit and, and watch. And yeah, it's, it's just like surreal and awesome and fun. Yeah, I think I remember you talking about how, you know, you guys were out there, you and your friends were out there, and all of a sudden you notice all on the cliffside, here's a bunch of Yemenis just hanging out with Cot, just watching, like, where are these two white boys up there? Yep, it's just like a, f- <laughs> a fun show. And the best part was nobody would, like, you know, mob or anything afterwards. Like, we'd get done or, yeah, paddle in, and people would kind of, like, you know, just move on to whatever else they were doing. Like, okay, show's over. Nobody would, like, come and say, what are you guys doing? Nobody cared. They were just, uh cool whatever that was is over <laughs> were there were there any locals that also kind of joined you guys in surfing no we we when we were in uh socotra which is the island off of yemen um we would like put the kids on boards there and sometimes kids would come down and we'd push them on and, or put them on and you know they'd paddle around and stuff but yeah yemen is not endemic or surfing is not endemic to yemen nobody i don't think ever done it before we had been there like that's just not you know the fishermen would kind of like ride in on their boats and stuff after the day but nobody was like surfing surfing right now did you also get the opportunity to partake in cot oh for sure cot is epic (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know how epic it was until yeah like i'd never heard of it even uh but man nothing beats a long car ride like a cheek full of cot i don't i don't know why they don't make it legal here all the truckers and stuff would just be in heaven so what i mean this may sound like a silly question but what is it like is it like is it similar to getting you know high from marijuana no it's it like so you start chewing and there's like with humanities it's super ritualistic too like you know obviously they have a whole room in their house that's dedicated to chewing cop the mafraj and so you go and you start chewing and everybody's real chatty 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 for a while and you like everybody chatty for like three hours and then at some point they call it the hour of solomon where everyone you get real like kind of interior where it's just quiet and just concentrate on stuff like you could just be staring at whatever and just concentrating on it but it's not like hallucin you're not having hallucinations it's it'd be like i suppose uh low level cocaine if you had no ups and downs it just was like it just held steady 
Interesting. Yeah. And it goes like you can chew for, you know, six hours. So if you're on like a long car ride, you can just be chewing, 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 and time goes by super quick. Man, and is that is that like a completely legal trade there in Yemen? Oh yeah. I mean, it is like a national, everybody's like the the cot markets, like it's what everybody does all the time, pretty much. Like you wake up and they're real serious about it. Cot and it's expensive, the good stuff. I think for a, like a good, you know, leafy good bush of or whatever, like bunch of cot, I think it was it would cost like 30 or 40 US which was, and that's what they were paying too, which was like a fortune for them. But yeah, it's like, I think a ton, a ton of their income goes to chewing cut. How, how much would that last you one, uh, you know, bush or whatever you want to call it? Just one session, one like chew session with, oh, wow. with yeah, with like, yeah, a big kind of bundle would last. We were, we were four on that trip and it would last us, yeah, like four guys, like five-ish hours. Man, that's, that's, I, I do wonder if that's ever going to become, you know, with just the way the drug trade and, and the way narcotics are being viewed now in America. Like, I wonder if that will enter the pipeline someday. I think it's, it's not enough of a quick hit, I think, for people. Like, I think you want your drug, your party drug. It's no party drug, right? Like, it's a commitment to, and especially your chewing leaves. Like, you have to keep plucking the leaf off and popping it in. You got to form up a little ball in your mouth and be able to nav- navigate your cot ball and, all that where it's like a thing you've got to kind of sit still and do for a while, which is, I don't think it'll ever go with the American party no. mentality. <laughs> no, I, I would agree with you on that. I, I, I don't think that's, uh, that's certainly not going to, certainly not going to catch, catch at least the trend. Yeah. Uh, no, man, so. I, bet, I bet Marines would love that oh. shit, dude. Bring it out to ITX. I mean, oh, something, yeah. anything where you're bored is like the perfect thing. Like where <laughs> you're, you're stationary and bored is yeah. it's perfection. Yeah, I can definitely see guys, you know, doing uh, security or posts, just kind of hanging out with some chewing some cot. At the bet, I mean, it's perfect though because it makes you super alert. Like it doesn't, it doesn't dull your senses at all. It makes you, makes you work really hard. It makes you. That's why you many workers love it because it makes you uh, work hard and not hungry. Wow, that's interesting. Yep. So, what was the actual picture, right, with you and the surfboard and the technical? Was that the uh, contact you mentioned earlier? The was that escort um, from the? I believe you said it was the son of, of the, the prime minister. Yeah, I, there were certain areas that were uh, obviously in Yemen that were like I think real hot at the time. I mean, there was you know there's tribal skirmishes, there's pirate attacks there, there's all kinds of stuff perpetually going on. And if I recall, there was one area where uh, we had to get a technical escort through it. And so, yeah, they, they escorted us. And then afterwards, you know, we were all, we were all bros. And so, yeah, just hopped up on the truck with the surfboard and took some shots before they took off. <laughs> Have you had any contact with, with any of those guys? Uh, no, I wish. I so wish. I wish that I had any of, any of their numbers. They're all like good looking military bros too. Those, those you many uh, army guys are tough too. They like, they're not just, yeah, push over a little, little army. They're, they're serious about what they do. So do you think, you know, ha- having experienced these things, do you have hope for the Middle East in terms of getting back to a more kind of peaceful state? I do. I just hope that people leave them alone, kind of, that, 
like because I think they Yemen, if left alone, would rebuild. They have resources, or you know, they don't have financial resources, but they do have you know land that they can produce food on. They have water. They have stuff they need, and it'll come back. I just would love for the war on terror and the idea of Islam as enemy, which it does feel like it's shifted a bit from that, uh, you know, and, and yeah, for them just to be able to rebuild their lives and not be bugged anymore. Yeah. And I, yeah. Maybe, maybe you don't feel comfortable enough to answer this, but uh, do you see a solution to the civil war right now? I mean, Personally, I'm looking at it. I I really don't see that this is a war that could be won by either side. It kind of seems like it's an endless thing. I know they had a ceasefire. I want to say last year that held up for a little bit, but now it's been broken and they're just in this endless cycle of violence. I know there was also a civil war back in, I want to say like the 80s or the 90s, right? When Yemen was split up in two. I mean, is that maybe that's the solution is i mean i think once i country? think once saudi gets away and once it, like if saudi and iran both agreed to stop and get out i think the south and the north would come to a pretty quick agreement i don't think that they want it i don't think they like it the civil war i don't think they necessarily like each other uh but they don't i don't they just don't like there's no real connection i mean and especially if sanaa's not getting flooded with foreign aid I think that's was part of the beef and it or, or part of the beef the South had was that Sanaa was getting all this capital and they weren't getting anything. But then once the war started, like and just being funded from both sides again, I don't think that they really have beef with each other. Uh, it's just getting, you know, it's proxy from outside. It's not their fight. And so I think if everybody left, they would be they'd be cool again. Do you think uh, the U.S. could play a role in that, you know, specifically in not supporting Saudi in their uh, in their efforts to fight the war. I mean, a hundred percent. And the way that Saudi has fought that war is just dirty, right? Like it's is hasn't been good. And to so to support it, to me, and of course, I suppose you're giving you know Iran some kind of moral victory or something. But I don't think really. And I think that yeah, like if U.S. just said, "Hey, Saudi, we're not backing this thing anymore. This has been too destructive, and it's going nowhere, and it's for no reason anymore." Like just stop it. Uh, that I think it would be done. Yeah, and I mean, at at that point, I mean, you really got to look at what's going on. Like, okay, let's say Iran does get a victory in a sense, right? I mean, okay, whatever. How how many people could die in the future if if you just let this thing keep going? How many people Com- have died completely. already? And what? So you so Iran gets you know like a moral victory in Yemen. I mean, it's not like they're. I mean, what, what do you win? You get a little bit of natural gas. I mean, this like, that's pretty much it. Oh, a good surfing spot, I guess. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you get the surf. That's why they should, <laughs> I suppose that's what they're all fighting for now. So, you know, having professionally studied it, you know, and also traveled to all these places, this may sound like a loaded question, but what have you learned about Islam? I mean, Islam to me is beautiful, right? Like I, uh, understand it I feel better than I understand sort of like godless American materialism in in terms of just the people they believe in something they believe in something bigger than themselves and and to me that's way easier to navigate than if people don't believe in anything right and not to get culture worry but I think that that's what happens if you don't believe in anything then you fixate on pointless stuff uh like just the raging culture war in America 
where if you really, for them, I think, for Yemenis or for, for Muslims, like, I don't know, just their, it, just, it seems like it doesn't get silly, whether you believe it or not, it just doesn't get silly. There's like this higher thing that you could say, okay, let's agree that, that you know, this is this, and then you could do other stuff underneath that. Do you see yourself kind of going back? Or actually, I'm sorry, I, I take that back. I got another question for you kind of related to that. Do you consider yourself to be uh, a man of faith in, in any sort of religious way? Yeah, I mean, I'm a Christian and always was a, you know, would never hide it. And especially like in Yemen and in Lebanon and stuff, when they'll ask, uh, you know, and I'll tell them I'm a Christian, that's something they understand too, right? Like they don't understand this godless American thing. And so they're like, okay, well, we disagree, but at least, you know, we're people of the book, right? To them, like we, we have a disagreement, but we're both believers. And even with the getting busted by Hezbollah, you know, it came down to that where there was a real attempt to convert for a minute. And I've been, you know, they, I've been the butt end of conversion a lot. Like, oh man, remember one time flying, I can't remember where, from Somalia to uh, Dubai or something. And there was just like full on Patan, Taliban, huge, you know, Afghans on the plane. And I was sitting next to one of them and he just leaned over and really worked me over for the conversion. But uh, the, the, you know, at the end they're like, okay, whatever. We, we both believe in something, which I think it's an easier way to get along over there if you have a belief. Yeah, there's, there's definitely this perception among some Americans, right? Maybe more so in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, but there's a perception that Muslims hate Christians. Right? Yeah. We're just, we're incompatible. They hate us for no particular reason other than the fact that we're Christian and we just, we cannot get along. We're always going to butt heads until the end of time. And it sounds like in your experience, that really is not the case. No, zero. Like it was being a Christian and being out about it and telling them they'd be like disappointed, but then it was something they could understand. They're like, okay, you believe something too. And they got it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't realize like I'm, I'm Christian myself, right? I'm Catholic. Right. So I, I believe in the same faith and a lot of people don't realize like how much our religions like have in common right we believe in the same god yeah we believe in different things but we originate from the same place and we're you know brothers and sisters in that sense completely and that that people of the book thing really does resonate over there i mean they are they want you to be a muslim and to them you know islam is correct but if you're not gonna be a muslim then okay christian you're kind of we're all we're all on the same team ish yeah, definitely. I super hate to cut this short. I've got to drag daughter to ballet. No worries. No worries at all. Well, Chaz, really appreciate you coming on and, and giving us the time you did. It was a great having you. Thank you guys so much for having me. And yeah, for, for, yeah, these are the kind of conversations I like so much better than surf conversations. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, really. Uh, thank you. Thank you for being here. And um, I would love to have you on again, because I think uh, we both have a lot. We still want to talk to you about anytime seriously hit me up it is my pleasure awesome all right Chaz. Awesome. good yeah. seeing you appreciate talk it. to you guys soon yeah, you. thank you again bye yeah, thank you guys for listening to that episode i really hope you enjoyed it again that was only part one of us talking to Chaz. we will have him on again soon because there is a lot more we wanted to ask him unfortunately we had to cut it short but again thank you for supporting this podcast overall you guys have really helped us grow over the past year and it, it means a lot to us you could find this podcast on your favorite apps that's Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, 
wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. You could find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. We're also on Telegram at Analyze and Educate. It's the and symbol. It's not and spelled out. Also, please consider supporting us again at patreon.com slash analyze educate or at ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app you use to listen to this podcast. We would very much appreciate that as well. Also, follow the podcast on whatever app you're listening to if you do not do that already. And that is all I have for you guys. We will see you around.